0: and it's called ADHD Wise Squirrels, and you can find it at wisequirrels.com or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search ADHD Wise Squirrels. Pop over and have a listen. Let me know what you think. Thanks. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, Go subscribe.
1: I don't worry so much about what other people are going to think. I It goes back to the experiences I offer. I just need to, I always want to make sure that whatever I do feels true to me, uh, that it sounds like me, that it looks like me, that it is consistent with who I see myself to be. Um, and as long as I don't vary off of that, that I'm in good shape and you know it turns out that if you do that consistently enough which is what I've been doing for the last 10 or 15 years uh, people end up thinking that you have a great quote-unquote brand Um, but it really is just the product of my being pretty tenacious about not letting myself do what other people say I should do and really sticking true to what feels true to me
0: nice 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 with Dave Delaney Welcome to The Nice Podcast, all about communication, collaboration, and becoming better leaders. Today, I'm chatting with Tamsin Webster, who is part strategist, part storyteller, part English-to-English translator. She helps experts drive action with their ideas, and she's also a really amazing keynote speaker and the author of the brand-new book, which I love, Find Your Red Thread, Make Your Big Ideas Irresistible. Tamsin, welcome to The Nice Podcast.
1: Hello, it is a nice podcast. Thanks, Dave.
0: Nice to be here. <laughs> so what's the nicest thing someone has done for you recently?
1: Everybody's doing nice things for me with, you know, the reviews of the book. I mean, that's kind of a nice thing that people are doing.
0: I think to your point, and now I'm thinking, oh gosh, I hope I've posted a review already. Um, But it is, yeah, I mean, and and that is something as an author and as an author myself you know, if you when you you don't realize or a reader doesn't realize just how valuable and how important reviews are and, and same with podcasting, too. I'm always I, I try not to like shill for reviews on my podcast, even though the the reviews are very important because they help feed the algorithms and tell the algorithm this, you know, people like this. So um taking the time to leave a review is is a very nice thing. And and so for those listening who have read Tamson's book, um, you know, definitely definitely leave that review. Cause I mean, that is like it's like tipping without having to spend money. That's true.
1: Yes, I mean, and it's been everyone's been so generous, and and I know you know in a lot of cases that this requires like at least leafing through the book and um and yeah, so people have been incredibly generous, so that's what I'll say it's that there have been so far forty five really lovely people who have. Left positive reviews of the book and that, that, that is 45 nice things. There you go. I see your single nice thing and raise it to
0: 45. <laughs> well played. Well played. So, um, and, and in your own career, and again, you know, you can, you can pause here for a moment and think about it, but who is someone that was especially nice to you in your career? Could be like really early, early on when you were just getting started or in, even at school or, or up until now, even.
1: Yeah, I would say that there's just been an amazing collection of strong, powerful, generous women that have led in very much part to where I am today. And that, that started way back when I was still in college and uh, this wonderful woman named Joan Norris, who was the head of marketing at the Isabella Strick Gardner Museum here in Boston hmm. and have took me under a wing when I wanted to volunteer in the museum and, and and got me started in, in doing marketing for museums, which is what I, what I originally wanted to do. Hmm. And then, um, she was also instrumental in helping me find my first job after grad school. She put me in touch with my next nice woman boss, hmm. Martha Rush Mueller. Right. Um, and, you know, and there's this just fascinating, you know, carry forward. And so, you know, for Martha, there's this wonderful woman named Maya who gave me my best piece of advice ever. Um, and I think, those are the folks that really come to mind when I think about the folks who have been nice to me and their niceness, their their faith, their courage. Sometimes their kind delivery of hard feedback uh, has definitely led me here. I wouldn't I wouldn't be where I were am now without without that beautiful string of, of women and some non women as well. But those are the those are the those three in particular come to mind.
0: That's great. And, and you mentioned the best piece of advice you ever received. What was that?
1: Well, that was from Maya and in response, you know, one of those kindly delivered hard pieces of advice and, um, the way that it came up was that she was actually passing on to me a piece of advice that she had gotten. Uh, and, and the context for the feedback, the critique, as it were, Mm. uh, was that, um, that I felt like I had been maligned by a coworker. That a coworker had, you know, misunderstood my intentions of of, of something. And mm. and she said, you know what, Tamsin, I'm going to give you advice. That someone gave to me. She said, you know, when you have a situation where uh, someone thinks something of you, she said, it's not your job to decide. Whether they're wrong or right, or to tell them whether they're wrong or right, your job is to decide whether or not you are okay with the fact that that person thinks that thing. Um, if you're okay with it, like if it doesn't bother you that that person thinks that way, maybe because you just that's not a person's opinion who you respect or whatever she's like, then let it go. It doesn't matter. Mm. But if you actually value that person and and are troubled by the fact that they're thinking that about you then your job is to change their experience of you, uh, again, not to try to change their interpretations, but their experience. And that's how she summed it up. And so she said, you don't get to choose other people's interpretations of you. You only get to choose the experiences you offer. Mm. And that has been foundational, uh, advice for me ever since she shared it.
0: Yeah. That's fantastic. Do you, have you applied that to, to some of the work you've done? Like in, I mean, I can, I can think of some, but, but, Maybe I, you've been instrumental with TEDx in Cambridge and working um, with that organization. Have you applied that with TEDx at all?
1: Well, it's I mean, I think it's that kind of feedback is really it, it shows up much more in those weird, sometimes political situations, not yeah. like politics, politics, but in work place dynamics or, or kind of industry feedback back and forth where you, you know, someone will come to you and say, Oh, by the way, X person doesn't feel like you're being, you're speaking up enough about why. Hmm. And that's one of those times when you, I, you know, I, that, that advice immediately comes into play where I'll say, okay, well, does it bother me that that person feels that way? Um, certain, you know, certain times it has been a yes, it does. And so what am I going to do differently? Um, I think with TEDx Cambridge, you know, I, I always, the, the, the experiences you offer piece is definitely a thing that I, I try to put out there. And it's something that I, in, in, I, that I try to embed in all the work that I do, which mm. is making sure that the experience that I offer is, uh, as positive as it can be, that it's as, as reinforcing of someone's pre-existing strengths as it can be. Um, and that it's as consonant with who I am as I can be. Um, you know, I don't I don't tolerate in myself very well any gap between who I say I am and what I do. Uh and so any time that I get some kind of feedback from anybody uh that that points out a gap there, that's a thing that I immediately try to fix.
0: Yeah, and that's that and just applying, I think, what you know, and, and some of that is is just about giving honest, not not critical and that's or maybe a little critical but but honest feedback in order to help someone excel right oh that,
1: of course yeah. yeah i mean i yeah i think you know the way one of my mantras for life is be useful be thoughtful be passionate and be kind and that be kind one <laughs> is the hardest mm-hmm. sometimes um because sometimes it's kinder not to tell someone something and sometimes it's kinder to tell someone something right so Um, and you add, you add that to the, the way that my brain is wired, uh, and it's something I've had to kind of work around is that I'm, I'm wired to see what can get improved in myself and others and, and, and everything. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and that, and that tends to mean that I don't always appreciate or communicate, I should say. I do always appreciate, but don't always communicate. Like, hey, but you're starting from a really good spot here. Yeah. Um, and so I learned the hard way that that to how to how to be more constructive in critique like that. And so I learned a wonderful uh, feedback mechanism uh, from a former colleague, and you know they referred to it as plus EBI, which is something I still do with my clients, TEDx, and not. Um, and the plus EBI, so the plus is for positives and EBI stands for even better if. And a way it works is that when there's something to improve, let's say you're, you know, I'm reviewing someone's talk and I'm, I'm like, oh, this, you know, I, my brain is like, oop, this is wrong. This place is out of order or whatever. Um, rather than just going, this piece is wrong, this piece is out of order, say mm. something more like, what's the positive that is attached to that? Like, why is it a problem that that piece is missing? And so I would start, for instance, from the positive. Well, the core I- idea of this piece is so strong, we want to make sure that there's no part of the argument that the audience doesn't hear. So let's make sure we have this piece included. Mm. And you can see like that, that just frames everything differently. It's also a really good check on me to make sure that I'm not just focusing on like fix this, fix this, fix this, but that people really hear what is, what is already strong and what's already positive about what they're doing.
0: That's brilliant. And I love the fact that you, you padded at the beginning with that, with that enforcement, with that positive enforcement, right? With that reminder of what is going right first.
1: Yeah. And it's not so, you know, and I think there's ways to, that people can miss, misuse that right there's the you know the the, what is the the critique sandwich the feedback sandwich like positive negative positive what i particularly like about that approach or at least the way that i've come to use it is that i is that it forces you not just to say a nice thing before you say a critical thing it's Mm. about it's about always tying to tying a critical thing to a strength like it's so they're not just separate they're basically saying because this thing is good we need to make this thing better right and I think that's a really important shift. It's a subtle one, but it's a really important one.
0: I read uh, a while back, Sam Harris. Are you familiar with Sam Harris?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. His, yeah. he's
0: got a great book called lying. Um, and, and he basically makes the argument to not lie and to actually, and this is something he practices where he, he tries his best or, or I guess he does it perfectly. I don't know, but like never lies.
1: <laughs> That's impossible. That's impossible. I, I don't, I, I love the intent behind that yeah. and it's full stop. Not possible, but okay. <laughs> I mean, Dan Arielli's done some amazing research on that as well. And it's mm. like, I think there are times when, um, because here's the thing, here's actually my, my issue with that is that you can start to do some pretty loopy ethical things in order to tell yourself you're not lying that ah. you actually are. And so, you know, one of the things that I've discovered in all my random research and random explorations of things for my, what I call my swipe file, um, was discovering that there's multiple kinds of lies.
0: Hey, you're listening to the nice podcast with Dave Delaney. That's me. Visit futureforth.com to learn how we can transform the communication at your organization. And if you need a speaker for your next online event or your in-person conference, are we doing in-person conferences yet? Ugh, soon, I hope. Uh, you can visit DaveDelaneySpeaks.com and uh, you'll learn more about working with me there. All right, let's get back to the show.
1: And the kind of lying that people actually hate the most is the, is the truth told in a misleading way. Mm. And that's known as paltering. And Mm. it's such a good word. It's basically, and we've probably all done it where you don't, you don't say anything not true, but you know perfectly well that what you're saying could be interpreted in many different ways. So you can tell yourself that you're not lying, but the effect on the other person is the same. And by the way, when they found out, find out that you do that, that hurts you in their eyes more than any other kind of lying.
0: Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, because it's, it feels extra manipulative. Um, and so, you know, I, it's not that I'm saying, Hey, it's okay to lie. I just think that, um, I, you know, I, that's where I come back to the be kind. Piece. The be useful, be kind is an important bracketing on that for me, mm. because it's, it means that I, those two, those two things can sometimes be in tension with each other. Um, but to me, you know, if they're in a head to head competition, be kind always wins out. Um, and I do my best not to ever say anything untrue, but I think holding yourself to a standard of like, I'm never going to lie is going against how humans are fundamentally wired. And I don't like setting myself up to fail.
0: <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. And where, where did you come up with these, these words that are this mantra rather? Where, where like what, what, where did you come up with those? specific i mean there it's, it's a solid mantra those are great great things to to uh, strive for in your life but like where and when did you kind of nail those down
1: you know i don't i i don't remember the process i do remember it was it was it was a series of things that I know my first husband and I were in lockstep with because those were values that we wanted to teach to our sons. And and I, I think we've been successful in that. Mm-hmm. I think they just kind of, um, they evolved over time. I mean, he and I both were and still are a big, you know, really passionate about being of use, you know, that, that you know, you're, our role as humans, I, I believe this for myself, is, is is to help other people do other things. And if I see an opportunity to help somebody do something, if I can be of use, if I can put what I know or or what I can do to work, then it's my obligation as a human to to do that, to be useful. Mm. Um, and some of that's in reaction to just seeing people, you know, sit back and wait for stuff or just be entitled and whatever. But I, I just think it's also a part of a, a worldview that says. It's you know, in my in my mind. I'm definitely kind of a communitarian in that way. Mm. Of you know, it's our it's our responsibility to to be of use, and that's different than helpful. Um, because uh, to to paraphrase, you know, a, a friend and the real progenitor of this kind of idea, Laura Gassner Auding, you know, helpful kind of presumes some kind of. I have a thing that you don't. And so therefore, let me help you. There's this this little bit of a reach down to lift up kind of thing with Mm a helpfulness. Mm -hmm. And usefulness to me is, you know, you pick up a tool that's useful. Like that's the other person kind of reaching to you and pulling up. And I just, I much prefer that balance.
0: Yeah, LG. Other
1: than those, I, yeah, I'm sorry. Other than that, I think we just kind of came to those ideas.
0: Yeah, I love it. And uh, yeah, I was just going to say LGO was actually on this podcast a while back. So of course uh, she was. Yeah, yeah, she's the best. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. And I think, I think everyone needs a sort of mantra or, you know, I, I think, I think nailing this down and kind of living by it. You know, I mean, mine is just the golden rule of treat people the way you want to be treated, right? Which is what my mom taught me. And, you know, I didn't, I knew it before I knew it was called the golden rule. And that's something that I've, I've instilled in in our kids as well. Um, but I do want to talk about the book, but before we do, I I do want to talk a little bit about content marketing and sort of personal branding in a way, because, um, you are clearly like an expert at this and, and uh, like, really, like, you know, I was going through your website before and, and poking around and, you know, reviewing your YouTube videos and things and your email marketing and and all that stuff, Tamsin. And you do such a great job with staying on brand. And so this is something I've struggled with throughout my life, partly because I think I'm just such a nerd that like blogging and, and social and everything was more a form of communication really with the only intention of making friends for me, <laughs> like early, mm, yeah. early on, I had jobs and there wasn't an intention for me to use these mediums as ways to, to build my brand or to, um, or to, you know, build a business. Cause I was working and I had a paycheck and all these things. So like, tell me a little bit about how you think of, 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 content as it applies to to your own brand and, and, and your own personal brand and, and building a business from that.
1: Yeah. So I, if you could see my face, I had to, I was like smirking when you said that I was an expert, because I had to tell you, like I've spent 25 years in marketing and that mechanical aspect of it, like the putting the things where they're supposed to go is not by a little, my least favorite part of marketing. (laughs) Um, so I have to tell you, like, everything I do is, is, uh, to minimize the, is all about minimizing how I have to think about it and, and minimizing the work that I have to do. Um, which I know probably sounds strange because I know when people look from the outside, they're like, okay, Tamsin, you generate a lot. And I, I get that. I know there's a, there's a newsletter every week. There's a, there's a video every other week. Um, you know, those, but also note how things get multitasked, right? So it's like I record a video, but the video becomes the subject of, uh, the newsletter. So I don't have to think about the topic for that particular week. Mm. And because I've already figured out how I, you know, I structure the I, you know, I use my own process of the red thread to figure out what the video is going to be and what I'm going to say, because, you know, the new version of it is to do a message in a minute. Well, guess what? You can't do that unless you plan it out ahead of time. Yeah. That um, it gives me, it actually gives me the outline for the article I'm going to write about it. Um, and so I try to multitask as much as possible, first of all. But I think where it really comes down to is that you know, there's plenty of people who I'm sure could look at what I do and say, oh, you're not doing X or Y or Z enough. And trust me, people decide to give me that feedback unbidden plenty. They're Mm -hmm. like, you know, you know, you should sell, you know, you should sell more to your list Samson. you know, you should break it up or, you know, you should do X, Y, or Z. You should, you know, do whatever to my YouTube videos so that I have a bigger subscriber base there or whatever. And, um, you know, I think a couple of things come into play. One remember that I hate this stuff. Number two, um, uh, I, I won't do anything that I wouldn't want done to me. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really important part. So it's a thing I've referred to in the past as the persuaders paradox. Uh, it's particularly rampant among marketers where we, we somehow convince ourselves that it is okay for us to market and to, promote to other people in a way that we are intolerant of being marketed to or promoted to ourselves. Mm. And so you, frankly, I don't like it when somebody bombards me with sales pitches. I don't like it when every post turns into a, Oh, oh, this was a sale. This was actually a push. I don't like it when someone teases me with a video and then says, okay, but to get the, to the, you know, the real meat, the actual content, something that's actually useful, you have to go here, go behind a paywall, whatever. Mm. Um, I don't like it. I don't like that. And so, you know, back to the golden rule, like I won't market to other people in a way that I wouldn't have them, you know, that I wouldn't want to be marketed to myself. And so I think that comes back to my, really my third point around this, which is I don't really consciously think about my brand. And what I do think about is who I am, what I stand for, why I do what what I do the way that I do it. I'm super clear on that. And I'm super clear on how I like my stuff to look, <laughs> much to the chagrin of the people who edit my videos and my publisher and all of that, which is like, no, it needs to look like X. Um, and thankfully, I found a wonderful partner in Michelle Martello, who does my website, um, who just gets that aesthetic. And that's the thing. I mean, I had just... I know what I like. I know what I like things to look like. I know what I like things to sound like. And I don't like, as I was saying before, I just don't like there to be a gap. And so I won't, I won't do things that don't feel right to me. I won't say things that don't feel right to me. And so, you know, I think my problem, my big dirty secret, no longer a secret is that, you know, any fun interaction that anybody really sees from me on Instagram is probably not is, is actually not me. Like I don't, <laughs> I don't post like a lot of the stuff that gets posted on Instagram is posted on my behalf by, uh, Jen, who is the Tams and whisperer. She's my director of business operations. Right. Um, I mean, I'll thank people for posting something and I'll, you know, if someone tags me, I'll reply and all of that. But like, anytime you see kind of like some fun story, I, I still don't understand stories. I just don't. So that's 100% her. <laughs> um, So I don't know. I think that's kind of a mishmash of an answer, but really it comes down to, I don't worry so much about what other people are going to think. I, it goes back to the experiences I offer. I just need to, I always want to make sure that whatever I do feels true to me. Uh, that it sounds like me, that it looks like me, that it is consistent with who I see myself to be. Um, and as long as I don't vary off of that, that I'm in good shape. And, you know, it turns out that if you do that consistently enough, which is what I've been doing for the last 10 or 15 years, um, people end up thinking that you have a great quote unquote brand. Um, but it really is just the product of my being pretty tenacious about not letting myself do what other people say I should do, and really sticking true to what feels true to me.
0: Mm-hmm. And that that exactly. Yes. That's it, it, a great way to look at it too. like your your personal brand is really you. Like, you know what yeah. I mean? Like, it, it, you yeah. don't have to think about personal brand if you're sticking to your mantra and That's you're right. sticking to your, the colors and the looks and the styles and all that stuff. And then, you know, outsourcing where you need to. As far as like the, the content that you do create, you do, you did mention, Uh, a swipe file. Tell me a little bit about what that process looks like for you.
1: I love my swipe. So my swipe file came again from a way to, you know, to, to satisfy what I knew was necessary from a presence on social media standpoint, um, which is, you know, make sure that you're, you know, you're talking about other things, at least in equal amounts, if not more than yourself. Um, that's effortful not because i'm not inclined to do it but it was kind of like oh, god what the hell do i talk about like i don't know and and i'm busy enough thankfully bl- gratefully with client work and other things that i don't have time to just hang out on social all day um and so i needed to be really strategic i should probably also mention dave that i am fundamentally lazy and so <laughs> um I, you know, I break the rules. Like I do post, I post the same thing across different channels. I know you're not supposed to do that, but again, it's like, okay, shoot me. I mean, (laughs) I just don't have time. Yeah. Um, but this, but the swipe file came out of that laziness plus the multitasking plus the be of use piece. So, um, and it actually really started with, um, uh, my trying to fix my own, you know, perceived like things that I didn't feel like I was strong in. So, I would say that I really started the swipe file probably at this point now, eight or nine years ago, mm. eight, eight-ish, nine or years ago. And so, and it was inspired by the folks that I knew—people, some of whom you know as well, like my husband mm. um, and a former boss uh, and a former colleague—who uh, were amazing storytellers. They were just—they—they—and not just they could tell a story well; they just had the coolest facts and things, and they just knew stuff. And I'm like, well where did you find this stuff? Because, you know, (laughs) so I wrote in a recent newsletter, like I went to business school, which may have taught me how to do stuff, but it doesn't teach you how to be interesting. And these were interesting people. And I was like, well, I just, I must, I must not read widely enough. I, I let, so I really set on this path to say, Okay, at the time I readily read only nonfiction. It was mostly within my area of expertise, so I knew a crap ton about motivation, decision making, persuasion, and all of that. But I w- like I didn't have like awesome stories to explain it. Um and so I just I started looking for those things. I started looking for uh things that would be that would be great examples, great illustrations. Uh, I started reading, you know, made a dedicated effort to start reading fiction and, uh, the classics so that I could pull in a wider variety. So I wasn't always just, you know, quoting Jack Trout and, Mm -hmm. you know, and Seth Godin or whatever, but I could quote Agatha Christie and I could quote Ian Forster and I could quote more interesting or more unusual, unexpected people. And so when I just, so I, honestly, eight, nine years ago, I set up a bunch of RSS feeds, um, you know, back when that like Google had that. And then when they stopped, I switched to feedly and I just kind of ported them all over. Mm. Um, and I quickly discovered that I had way more things that I was discovering than I could ever use. And then I was like, Ooh, well, look at this. I can kill two birds with one stone. I'm going to do this research anyway. But if I share the things that I find." onto my social, then I can make sure that the I've got a good balance of me being useful and not talking about myself. Um, you know, and I, and it's, and it gets me on the social. It gives me a reason to post something. Um, and I'm being useful to other people. And oh, by the way, I'm continuing to expand my own you know, mental swipe file of things that I can draw from. Mm. And I just kind of stuck with it. And because it's fun and it's, it's unexpected. And, uh, but I don't do it because it's unexpected. It is still hugely part of me. Um, you know, I am, you know, if I were an animal, I would be a magpie. Like I just, you know, I've, I've said that for years now. I think, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I used to have it as a, as a, a, a kind of joke title on one of my business cards somewhere. It was intellectual magpie. Um, <laughs> I just love shiny ideas and I just loved kind of gathering all of them all up and figuring out what I could do with them. So that's a kind of, that's the where, how, why, what, and wherefore of the, of the swipe file.
0: I love it. And it's such a, yeah, that's a, a, a great methodology for that because I think, yeah, I think a lot of people like for me personally, like I shared so much on social for so long and then started realizing, wait a minute, I'm like, I'm feeding this social network uh, like I'm, I'm giving Twitter value. I mean, I'm, I'm all for giving followers, friends, you know, value that's, that's, that's a no brainer there, of course, but, but I'm also helping to keep Twitter in business by doing this. And then I realized, yes. wait a minute. And that's when I, I started the nice maker newsletter. That's about a couple of years old now where I share the best links of the things that I find each week. And then maybe I'll post them to social later. But if you're really following me because you enjoy some of the stuff that I share, um, and I share a lot of your stuff too, uh, because I find it really valuable. Um, you know, I'll do, I'll do that in my newsletter first. So yeah, it's interesting, but a quick question to, to to the book and then let's talk a little bit more or a little bit about the book. Um, you know, you mentioned you're lazy and, 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 <laughs> and as far as like the, the, the content side of things and how that's kind of, you know, can cause headaches and things. And then you wrote a book and yeah. I wrote a book and I know that like Heather had to get me down off the roof from jumping so many times, uh, not literally, of course, uh, <laughs> um, But, you know, writing a book is, uh, a big pain in the ass. There was like, it's, it's, it's really, and, and not to mention the actual compiling and putting it all together and actually the writing, but also the self doubt and, and all that that comes with that, which so much so that I actually Googled it when I was writing self doubt for authors and finding like, oh wait, everybody goes through this. Tell me a little bit about the process for you, especially, you know, for someone who was, you know, you you were talking about how you multitask and how you're able to do multiple things, but yet you're lazy with some of the content stuff. So how did you how did you pull it off?
1: <laughs> uh, I pulled it off as I do most things with a system. <laughs> so, and I say that I'm lazy, and I think that's true in the sense that I really don't like to waste time on things that are not interesting or important to me. So, like my whole life I've been trying to figure out how to, how can I spend less time on this thing because this thing is way more interesting or important to me. Hmm. Um, you know, so I, and I think I, when I was eight, I don't know, 10, I, you know, when I was, when I, however, if I was given the task of unloading the dishwasher, like I can remember like optimizing how I did it because I was like, I am going to minimize the time I have to spend on this dang chore <laughs> so I can go and, you know, play with my Barbie dolls or whatever. Um And I continued to do that. <laughs> um, and I will tell you that I had a massive, massive writer's block for this, you know, in this book, in, for this book for, for years. Um, I think I first started talking about writing this book, like actually seriously talking about writing it, like three years ago. Um, I spent a year not writing it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I
1: spent another year kind of talking to people about what it should be and why I wasn't writing it. And then, um, I would say that the, the, one of the, 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 the person who really helped unlock all this and full credit to her was Anne Handley who when I was like, all right, Anne, you know me, you know books, you know this, you know what I know, like, wh- wh- what should I do? Like, I'm I'm really frustrated by my inability to actually write this thing, because hmm. I know this stuff, like, what the hell? And she said, Tamsin, write the book that's easiest for you to write. And and she said, "Don't worry about the format." She said, "Don't worry yet about the publisher." She's like, "Do how you're going to get it out there." She's just like, "Just write the book that you're going to write, mm. and or that that's easiest for you to write." And that really it really did unjam things in my mind because instead of wondering and thinking about like, "Oh my gosh, is this like some beautiful Gladwellian giant tipping point kind of like big idea book?" I was like that's the, you know, that was what was getting me tripped up was like, what do I know that's as big as that? Um, and I was like, I, I, it just really in a way kind of made me say, well, I know how to write the book on this process. And, you know, you know, you mentioned self doubt. Um, I know this process works. Uh, This process has been tested in the fire of, of PhDs and, you know, and scientists and academics and former TED speakers and future TED speakers and all like it, I know it works because it had to work. Like I had to shore up anything that was weak about it. I had to be able, I have, I had to be able to defend every last little part of it. Um, and I, so I knew it, I knew, and I was confident in it. And I was like, and I know the process of explaining it to people and the process of working people through it because this is, you know, what's it written in the book is literally the same process step by step as I, as I walk my clients through. Mm. Um, so when she said that to me, I'm like, Oh, Oh, well, that I could do. And so that was one piece of it. I think the second piece of it was, um, finding a system for making it work. And I discovered through, um, well, I got the idea, you know, full credit again to A.J. Harper, who did this, um, of you what know, she calls it a, a write-a-palooza. She does these free things like four times a year where it's basically a Zoom call. It's on a Saturday. And from like 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock in the morning Eastern time to like 2 o'clock in the afternoon, it's basically 25 minutes on, five minutes off, right, just right. And I remember I did one of those with her and I, and I wrote the introduction that I had not been able to get myself to write in a year. And I was like, Oh, well, look at this. This seems to work. This idea of sprints, which I'm familiar with other parts of my work. I already used Pomodoro blocks, time blocking like that. Mm -hmm. Anyway, and I was like, and this extra thing about having somebody else on on like in the room also made a big difference Mm. um and so between that and uh, david burkus had done a thing kind of at 11 a.m on certain days where he was doing the same thing opened up a zoom room and i was like okay i can't do 11 but you know what 9 a.m that works for me so i set up a zoom room i had a you know i set up a a url to it and to you know clients and friends that i knew were working on books i was like hey i'm gonna be here at nine o'clock every weekday um I'm going to work for at least 20 minutes. I'm going to always do at least one sprint on the book. Um, join me if you want. And what I just found was, you know, that commitment to myself of doing at least 20 minutes and knowing that somebody else might be coming because it would be helpful to them was enough to make sure that I was always there and starting probably, well, across the pandemic last year is really, I'd say when it, when it happened, I was just 20 minutes every day at least and. You know, got a chapter done every two weeks, and I was able to turn in the manuscript in August or September. As a result,
0: that's brilliant. I remember LGO actually mentions uh, that, um, and I believe she might have done that with with Berkus as David. well. Yep. Yeah, yeah, which is a which is a great way to do that. Um, so, and, and you talked about reading fiction and kind of pulling ideas from that fiction and letting that fiction sort of, uh, you know, topics and stories within fiction inspire you in the content you've created. And you've done a great job with, with tying in different objects, different things from literature and things into the content that you create. And I think it does really show the value in, in reading fiction. Not that I have to tell everyone the value of reading fiction, but in, in that context. Tell me about the red thread as the red thread and not the black thread or not the straight line or whatever it how did the red line lo- and I love like I love, love, love the red thread. I mean yeah. I love that idea. I mean nobody can not imagine red thread. Um, yeah. so it's it's Did that come from fiction or something else?
1: So that that was kind of my magpie stuff working in full force. So uh, I think I first heard the expression in the sense that I use it in the in the book as a you know when meaning you know what's the thing that makes something make sense? What's the through line? you know, what's, what is this thing about? I first heard that probably again, eight or nine years ago, um, when I was working for a company called auratium and one of our clients was Ericsson in, in Sweden. Uh, and I was over there doing training with them on, on message development and, one of the clients used it in a conversation and they're like, oh, oh, okay. So what we're trying to do with this is we're trying to establish the red thread of this particular presentation. Mm. And I understood contextually exactly what it was, but I was like, Oh, you know, and I just noted it. I'm like, Oh, that's an interesting expression. I love it. It's very visual. You kind of immediately get it. You get the idea, but I thought it actually belonged to Ericsson. I thought it was just a corporate thing. You know, one of those things where, you know, they come up with it. And then about four, five years ago, I guess it would have to have been about five years ago. I, um, I had a a client, another client here locally in town in Boston, uh, at state street bank. And they had brought in like one of the people on the team was originally from Sweden. And she, she used it too. And I was Uh. like, and I was like, wait a minute. I was like, okay, either (laughs) you used to work for Ericsson or this is a Swedish thing. And she was like, Oh, don't, don't you all have that expression over here? And I was like, Mm, no, no, not really. Uh, I said, I get what it means, but I was like, where does it come from? Uh, and so she didn't actually know. And so that, you know, that, you know, my, that turned on my inner magpie and I went searching for its root. Uh, discovered that there are all sorts of red threads. There's a, a red thread in Eastern philosophy that talks about tying together two soulmates or two people who are meant to be together. Mm. Uh, there's a red, th- you know, Goethe talks about the red thread, uh, in the context of something that's, uh, only really known as the Rogue's Yarn. So it's the, a red thread that was woven into the ropes of British naval ships to identify that rope as belonging to the British Royal Navy. Mm. Um, and then, uh, but there's you know, there's red threads in that Bible. There's re- I mean, there's lots of red threads, but the, this red thread, uh, the Swedish one, uh, seems to have come from the Greek myth legend of Theseus the Minotaur and the Labyrinth. Uh, and the red thread was... Uh, a tool given to him by Ariadne, a woman who he ultimately like completely dicked over, by the way, um, <laughs> who, who gave him the thread as a way to trace his path through this maze, this labyrinth that nobody had previously been able to escape. And so. Uh, I just love that. I love that particular interpretation because it made so much sense in the context. You're, you're basically, it's the, how do you, how do you find the connection? How do you find your path? How do you find how you got to a place? How do you (laughs) lead, lead someone else there? And I was like, Oh, that's, that's
0: awesome. Let me interject here because it's making me think Sweden straight away. I think of IKEA, right? And then I think about getting lost in IKEA. Next time I go to an IKEA, I'm bringing a red thread to find my way out. That's
1: right. Except for the fact that it's like organized fairy, it's organized like a labyrinth. Like you just follow the arrows. They should be red.
0: I yeah, they, they, they totally red. should be. Oh, that's yeah. brilliant.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, and then, yeah. so I had, you know, it's stored away in my mental swipe file was this phrase, the red thread was the story behind it. Um, and, and then separately, I had this IP, this, this process that I developed for TEDx Cambridge um, that. Was this, were, were these five elements of what eventually came to be known as goal, problem, truth, change, action, the five pieces that are, that I talk about in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, but it didn't have a name. <laughs> and I'd spent a lot, you know, enough years in, in marketing to realize that I couldn't just call it the goal, problem, truth, change, action model. Um, but I was at a dinner with, uh, some folks that you and I both know, Neen James, Joey Coleman, Clay Bear, and, um, we, And I said, Hey, I need a name for this thing. And what do you think of the red thread? And that's when it was born.
0: Oh, I love that. That's awesome. And all wonderful people too. So, um, that's, that's super cool. So in the red thread, you wrote the biggest obstacle to inspiring your audience to act is the gap between what you want to say about your idea and what people need to hear about it. So how can you, you know, fill that gap?
1: Well, you fill that gap with what people's brains put in that gap anyway, which is a which is a which is a rationalization a rationalization and explanation or, you know, a more common parlance a story. Uh we do this all the time. We do it preconsciously. We see two things happen and we we make assumptions based on how other things, you know, patterns of what we've seen prior in the world to explain why it is that uh things operate the way that they do. You know, we, we essentially tell ourselves stories about why the work, you know, why the world works the way it does, why people behave the way they behave, why we behave the way that we behave. Mm -hmm. And so when it comes to sharing your idea with someone else and with getting them to act on that, they have to hear before they'll act on it, they have to hear enough of a story that makes sense to them for them to first understand the idea and then fundamentally to agree with it and then act on it. Because all of those pieces have to happen before they act. They have to understand what you're saying. They have to agree with it before Mm -hmm. they'll act on it. And so what you're filling that gap with is the pieces of that story that people's brains would build anyway. You're supplying that story. And ideally, you're supplying a stronger story uh, than the one that they would otherwise build on their own.
0: Love it. Okay. Um, And I wanted to ask you also about the duck bunny analogy, but I think, (laughs) do you want to talk about that briefly? And then I'm going to hit the lightning round and then we will wrap up because I know you've got a hard stop.
1: Yeah, the duck bunny is is turning out to be people's favorite thing about the book. It's the chapter that seems to resonate the most with folks. Um, The duck bunny is the mascot uh, in a lot of ways for a really important piece of your message. And that's at a moment in your message where you are drawing a contrast between how your audience currently sees a situation and how you see it. And the duck bunny serves as a really important mascot because it embodies certain things that are really important when you're drawing that kind of contrast. So the duck bunny itself refers to another thing that I found you know, through, through my swipe file research, mm. uh, uh, an optical illusion from uh, 1897, I think it is, where if you see it, it is, depending on how you look at it, it either looks like a duck or it looks like a rabbit. So it's the rabbit-duck illusion. Um, I prefer to call it the duck bunny. But what's really important about how it embodies this idea of creating this contrast is that, you know, first, no matter which animal you see first, you're correct. You know, if you see the duck first, you're right. If you see the buddy first, you're right. And so this is a really important piece of drawing this contrast, which is that you are validating how someone sees the world right now. The second piece is, is that once you indicate that there is a second view, that somebody can easily agree with you that that other thing is there. Hmm. Another important thing when you're drawing contrast, you're not saying, hey, you're, the way that you're looking at the world is wrong and my way is right. You're saying, hey, I understand why you see the world the way that you do. Do you also see this view? Hmm. You know, Right. And again, you're not trying to argue for it. You're just trying to find another. Would you agree that there is also a rabbit present in the image? Right. And the third thing that's really important about that duck bunny and capturing how you draw contrast between kind of current state and future state is that you haven't had to do anything at all to the picture. I mean, I love it, you know, so you can switch back and forth between the duck and the bunny, but I haven't added any new lines to that picture. Mm. And that's really important when you're trying to get somebody to see things in a new way the hardest thing to do, again, remember, I'm lazy, is to try to get them to look at an entirely different place. Like, say, stop looking at this picture; look over here. Right. It's way easier to get them to simply shift their focus, shift their attention, shift the lens or the perspective they're using on their current uh, on their current view um, than anything else. And so uh the duck bunny is the mascot uh for finding that contrast and it's about finding the, you know finding their current perspective the duck as i like to call it the new perspective the bunny uh, and then presenting both of those in a way that people really see the difference and yeah. the agreement and the relationship between the two
0: and if you want to do the opposite you could like be really aggressive and argue in the wabbit season duck season uh method oh, instead absolutely. right, That's right. <laughs> classic classic right. looney tunes classic. folks All right. Great. Okay. I know you got to wrap up. So I'm going to do the quick lightning round. So nice guys and gals finish. Oh, first. What's a nice book you recommend to the nice makers listening.
1: Nice book to recommend to the listener. Uh, I will recommend the book. I almost recommend no matter when anybody asks for like book or author's recommendations, which is Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, uh, because the more you understand how people's brains work, the kinder and the more useful you can be.
0: Excellent. How is Tamson Webster nice to herself?
1: Oh, she buys herself Diane von Furstenberg dresses when she has saved the money for them. I think you are
0: probably my best dressed friend. (laughs)
1: <laughs> it's just again it saves me effort uh, that's what i'm telling you it's laziness i mean i love the way those dresses look i love how they feel but it also means it's another thing i don't have to think about it's like when i have when i want to indulge i don't have to go shopping all over the place i just say what does dvf have right now i'm, I'm gonna get
0: that <laughs> i think many speakers kick their kick themselves that they didn't go the mitch uh, joel route and and just buy like black outfits for like,
1: because eh, I love, no, I,
0: I love that. I mean, personally, from my point of view, I love that idea of like not having to think of like what to wear.
1: And I think it's, I think whatever your uniform is, it's really, it's really practical. And, and here's the thing, like I said, I am <laughs> super consistent. I love patterns. I literally love patterns. I love them visually. I love them in ideas. And so one of the things I love about DVF dresses is that they're these, they, they are wonderful patterns. So it allows me to kind of show on the outside, the things that I love on the inside.
0: I love it. All right. If you had a billboard, what would it say?
1: Be useful, be thoughtful, be passionate, be kind. I love it. Tamsin. Thank you so much
0: for joining us today. How can people find you? Where can they find you?
1: Uh, I am literally the only Tamsin Webster in the universe, so it's (laughs) not hard, Uh, but TamsinWebster.com is the, is the home of all things Tamsin newsletter included.
0: And I highly recommend folks subscribe to that, subscribe to your, uh, YouTube channel as well. And of course, buy the book, The Red Thread, which is, it's absolutely brilliant. And I love it. And Tamson, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Ah, my pleasure. Thank you so much, Dave.
0: Thanks for listening to the Nice Podcast. I would love to include your voice on the show. If you have comments or questions regarding this episode or any episode, whether you might have some nice communications tips of your own, visit friend.nicepodcast.co. There you can record an audio comment and I expect you'll hear it on an upcoming episode. Theme song is Little Jane May, and the end song is Funny Feeling by Alistair Crystal at alistercrystal.ca. And we'll see you next time. Be nice.